You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined by a good friend and a person who appeared on this podcast series a short while back, Cheryl Gay Stolberg. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Cheryl joined the New York Times, I believe it's 1997, 24 years ago. She's covered the White House. She's covered Congress. She's covered national politics. She covered health in an earlier phase. She's now Washington-based, covering a whole range of big health issues. And in her prior work at the LA Times, she shared in two Pulitzer Prizes, And so we're thrilled to have you back here to talk to us today. Let's start with a broad question, which is, what are your reflections overall on how the transition from Trump to Biden has gone? We're a little over a month in. You've been looking at this very carefully from different angles day by day. What's your overall take on how things are going? Well, the difference couldn't be more dramatic. The Trump administration reflected President Trump himself. It was sort of chaotic, shoot from the hip, not very well organized. The Biden administration came in, you know, with a real plan. I think on his first day in office, he unveiled a 200 page plan. He appointed Jeff Science, who is the now the coronavirus response coordinator. Science in a past life was a management consultant and entrepreneur and overhauled the Obamacare website when it went awry. And, you know, they have very methodically instituted some order in, in not only the public response, but also in, you know, actually what they're doing behind the scenes. They've ramped up vaccination distribution. One of the first things they did was they gave the governors certainty about the vaccine supply so that the governors now have three weeks notice of how much vaccine they're getting. That's a big deal because before then, governors had no idea and things were very confusing for them. They have regular briefings three times a week. Tony Fauci and Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, and others brief the press. So there's sort of an orderliness to it. They're still confronting the same supply problem, though, with vaccine distribution that Trump encountered. But, you know, overall, I would say things are just a little bit less chaotic and a little a lot more buttoned down. One thing that's been noticeable in recent days is that President Biden and other key figures like Dr. Anthony Fauci, they're being pretty cautious lately in the timeline for reaching herd immunity, that pivot point in which People are hoping we reach that and controls can be loosened. Why is that? Is it the harsh lessons learned from the uncertainties in manufacturing and delivery of mass volumes of vaccines? Did they get sort of unsettled by that? Is it because of the proliferation of variants and the uncertainty that's created? And some modelers are now saying, better be careful. We may sit a, hit a, a big new bump in April, May, in terms of these variants causing a spike in new infection. What do you think accounts for the caution? You know, I think it's very simple. I think they just don't want to overpromise. They have been criticized for some confusion in their messaging. When the president first took office, he said he wanted to get 100 million shots 
into the arms of Americans by his 100th day in office. Then a few days later, he said, well, I think maybe we could up that to 150. There was confusion. Was he changing his target? Was he not changing his target? And uh, Tony Fauci at one point, I think, said that, you know, everybody who wanted a vaccine would be able to get one by April. And the president rolled that back and said July. So <laughs> I think that they want to be very consistent in what they're telling Americans and they do want to be cautious because we are really in a race against these variants. And they know that pandemics are unpredictable and this virus is unpredictable and they don't want to sell something that they can't deliver. Cheryl, you know, it, it's interesting because for a long time we were talking about people who were vaccine resistant. Now I think we're talking about people who are vaccine confused. Because, you know, there's different vaccines. People don't know which one to get. Every place, different locals and states are handling the vaccine differently. People don't know how to exactly register. It's being administered differently state by state, county by county. And what we're hearing a lot is that people don't know exactly when it's going to be their turn and when it's going to be their turn, they don't know which vaccine they're going to get. And is that vaccine going to then protect them from, you know, X, Y, or Z variant? You've been writing about this. What have you found in your reporting? Um, well, I think there is a lot of confusion. This is obviously the biggest vaccination program this country has ever taken, seeking to vaccinate every American. Vaccines and are typically done by the states. Vaccine registries, the vaccine efforts are typically conducted by the states. So you're right. Every state has a different approach. There's a lot of confusion about how to register. There are myriad websites. We're also in a situation where supply is short. And so you've got a lot of demand for something and not that much supply. So there's a mad scramble for it. And I think that really adds to the sense of tension and confusion among the public. We have had questions about whether the vaccines will protect against the variants. So, you know, we're sort of in this very confusing swirl. And I think it's kind of understandable because we're rolling this out in real time as companies are ramping up manufacturing as the virus itself is mutating and shifting. So it's a very fluid situation. I would also note that for people who don't have access to computers, for those Americans who are not as sophisticated, for many older Americans, it's difficult to take care of this in the computer age. I just saw an, a very lovely report on CNN this morning about a police officer in Ohio in a small township who took it upon himself to help older people connect with the vaccine. And he realized that it was people were struggling. And so he did it himself. And he got like 200 people vaccinated, older people in his community that were just confused and didn't have anyone to help them. So that's happening at Catholic University as well. Social work students are pairing up with the elderly in the community to get them registered. Right. And you're seeing these groups like vaccine hunters. There's a, a group in several states, sort of a social media, like almost a crowdsourcing effort of people posting on Facebook groups where to find this vaccine or what time is a good time to sign up just to help folks navigate this. 
Well, it really is a have and a have not situation. You know, if you're older and you don't, you don't have mastery of a computer, you're really going to be subject to some of the younger people out there who, you know, are sitting refreshing, refreshing, refreshing their phones all day long just to try to get that appointment. And then you have people, like you said before, who don't have access to computers at all, and they're really left out in the cold. And then I think there's another category of people who might have access to a mobile phone or a computer, but they don't have all day to sit around and try to schedule an appointment because the way a lot of places are scheduling appointments is it's really, you know, first come, first serve to get an appointment. And if you're an hourly worker or if you're somebody who is, you know, on the clock, somebody who's working outside, do you really have a lot of time during the day to try to hunt for that vaccine appointment? Yeah, I want and I want to talk about that also. And this brings to mind something I maybe should have said, Steve, when you asked me about the difference in the response. So there are socioeconomic and racial disparities. We've seen that laid bare by the pandemic in terms of who is affected. Black Americans, uh, Latinos are far more likely to get infected and die from COVID-19. And we're seeing this disparity in the vaccination effort as well. The Biden administration has really put racial equity at the core of its response. And that is something that is very different than what the Trump administration is doing. President Biden has um, named a COVID equity task force. Uh, they have taken steps to try to deliver vaccine to federally qualified health centers, which tend to serve underserved communities. And they are really trying to address not only the disparities that exist because Black and Hispanics and other minorities are having trouble accessing the vaccine, but there's also a whole separate issue of vaccine hesitancy and people in communities of color being more wary of a government vaccination program. So that that is a real and very important issue with access that that has to be addressed. And and part of that is as you said Andrew, people who are working can't always, you know, take off to get vaccinated. They can't spend 3 hours a day on the computer looking for, you know, whether or not their local CVS or Walgreens has the vaccine. What can the federal government do about this? Or, you know, are they trying to advise, come up with a plan? It, it really seems like, you know, we're not going to get to where we need to get to very quickly with all these elements swirling around. Well, the main thing, the big thing the federal government can do is try to, you know, press these companies to ramp up manufacturing because at the root of all of this is, you know, a scarcity of supply. The Food and Drug Administration is considering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's likely to be approved very soon this weekend, if all goes well, and that we will see, you know, at least another vaccine added into the mix. So supply should presumably expand. The administration is also trying to support mass vaccination clinics, especially in poor communities. I think last week they announced they were standing up two centers in New York, I think one in Brooklyn and the other in Queens to, you know, get vaccine to communities where it's most needed. So there are things that they can do, but they can't do everything at once. They only have so much bandwidth. One thing that you've touched on in your writing that's relevant to this is on the disparities issue, we don't have a very good grasp in terms of data on whether we're reaching these people. CDC 
only has capacity to track about 52% of the populations that are being served to put the data in terms of whether these are black, brown, socioeconomically disadvantaged populations with, with the granularity needed. I mean, there is a problem in terms of our data system, our national data system. And, and that goes back to the fact that vaccines and vaccination is the province of the states. So every state has its own immunization registry, which gathers information about who's vaccinated, you know, age, where they live, etc. Some of these registries do not take information about race and ethnicity. Some states actually have laws barring that. For the COVID vaccination program, states are being asked to share their data from their immune registries with the CDC. And it's turned out to be a sort of a patchwork effort, as you might imagine. And so you're right, the national effort is, is wanting. The CDC only has race and ethnicity data on 52% of vaccine recipients. And uh, I interviewed Marcella Nunez-Smith about this. She is President Biden's COVID-19 equity czar. And she said to me, we can't attack a problem unless we can quantify it. They need to get better data and they're working on it. But the absence of good data is a problem because it's hard to create policies to address a problem when you don't really have a complete handle on what the problem is. Cheryl, can we turn a bit to the what's been a very notable aspect of the Biden administration, which is the urge to memorialize those who have died and pay tribute to those left behind. We saw this in this beautiful ceremony uh, at the reflecting pool before the Lincoln Memorial on January 19th on the eve of the inauguration. We saw another beautiful ceremony at the 500,000 mark in terms of those who have died earlier this week at the White House. It's dramatic. It pushes against the desire to forgive and forget and move on. And it raises the question of what's the long-term meaning of this? What is the president and the vice president and their spouses trying to convey to the American people? And will it help move our conversation beyond a kind of highly toxic and politicized way of thinking about this? What's your feeling? Well, I think... I think you're right that the president is trying to move the country past a highly toxic and politicized way of thinking about the pandemic into a more compassionate conversation. Here, too, this is a great contrast between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. You know, President Trump did not want to acknowledge the deaths. He wanted to minimize the pandemic. He wanted people to think it was the China virus and you know, at the outset, he said it, it was a hoax. President Biden has taken a very different approach. And I think that their different approaches, in a way, are reflective of who they are as people. I mean, President Biden is someone who has suffered a lot of personal loss, the loss of his wife and infant daughter when he was, you know, very young, 30 years old, about to become a senator. And more recently, the loss of his son, Beau Biden, to cancer. And he campaigned on kind of a Bill Clinton, you know, I can feel your pain theme. And he, this is who he is. Yeah, it's authentic. It's not, it's not made up. I mean, this is, this is who he is. And I think though that he all, you know, everything about him, his tone, 
the way he talks to Americans, the sobriety with which he approaches the presidency and with which he approached that memorial at the White House, kind of speaks to this effort of trying to acknowledge that the country is in a difficult place. He wants to be a healer. He wants to be viewed as a consoler. He wants to lower the temperature. And I think all, you know, these events, they're intended to, to draw the country together and to recognize the place that we're in. Well, we were talking about this before we switched on the tape recorder, but this Joe Biden that we're seeing is a, a Joe Biden we haven't quite seen as a, a communicator before. He's very reserved. He, I haven't seen him raise his voice above a whisper since he took office. Everything is very sobering and very serious and conveys a, a real level of competence in the people around him. What do you make of all this as you're reporting? I mean, it, it has it calmed the country down? And I know, you know, sort of inside the beltway here it has, but what about outside the beltway? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, Andrew, and because we're in a pandemic, I really don't know what's happening outside the Beltway. Um, I can't, you know, I haven't traveled, uh, but I've been wondering a lot about whether or not how people outside the Beltway are reacting to Biden. And is there a lowering of the temperature? I, I kind of think there would have to be because you're not reacting to things that he's saying the way we all reacted to things that President Trump said. So while there might be antipathy toward Biden in Trump country, he himself is not doing anything to really fan the flames of that. You saw even when the Senate parliamentarian ruled that their $15 minimum wage could not be part of the, the rescue package, you know, that it was not appropriate to include it. He didn't go off on the Senate parliamentarian. He said he was disappointed. Nancy Pelosi said she was disappointed. Just that tone is so different from what we have seen in Washington for the past four years. The other thing that's changed is that weekends have changed <laughs> because the country is kind of getting a rest from the presidency on the weekends. President <laughs> Biden pretty much goes dark and he's not issuing crazy tweets in the middle of the night. So we're less reactive, as a, I, I think, as a result. And he's flooding the Sunday talk shows with very competent, very competent personalities. And Tony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, engaging in in a very straightforward manner on this question that... He's told people, I want you to be respectful. If you're not respectful, you're gone. And we saw that happen, actually, with one of his press secretaries. T.J. Delco, yeah. Who berated and engaged in kind of a misogynist rant against a reporter and was pretty much gone the next day, although it took a little prodding. At first, he was put on a week's leave. But, you know, so the president has has set the tone and has made it clear that he expects his underlings to act in keeping with the way he acts. On this question that Andrew raised about is this behavior, this posture, this attitude that the president's conveying and his team is conveying, is it changing American popular opinion? I think there's two important data points on that. He needs to get this $1.9 trillion bill through, right? In Congress, he's, he's stuck, right? For the most part. He's got to make sure he holds his own ranks and maybe he'll pick up a vote or two, but it's going to be largely along, along party lines. But outside of Washington, he's polling at 66% You're support. You're absolutely right. People support this bill. And he has done that by not politicizing it, by not pushing it out there as 
Well, you know what goddamn Trump did? Well, look what I'm doing. He has kept the temperature down. He's tried to depoliticize the response and put it forward as this is what we need for health, for economy, for our uh, addressing our disparities, uh, building our capacities, protecting Americans. And we've got to go fast. And he's mobilized the economists for the most part. There are a few exceptions behind this vision. And he's got the governors. It's interesting how many governors he has now from the Republican side saying very positive things about the plan, about the $1.9 trillion plan. There are four or five prominent Republican governors. The other thing I'd say is the rollout of vaccines, as difficult and problematic as it has been, we, we passed the 50 million mark this week. We are in the top five performing countries in the world in getting in rolling out vaccines, despite all our problems. And the percentage of Americans who are eagerly awaiting a vaccine has jumped by 10 points in just the last month. I think that's true, although I don't I think that I would be cautious in giving Biden complete credit for all of that. I mean, some of that was going to happen anyway. The ramp up of production was going to happen anyway. And we could foresee that as more and more Americans got vaccinated, more Americans would feel comfortable getting vaccinated. So I think we should give President Biden credit, you know, where credit is due. But I also think that some of the vaccine rollout improvements were probably going to come anyway because of the, su- the supply. My point, though, Cheryl, is he's attempting to depoliticize vaccines. He doesn't want vaccines to go the way of masks. He knows he has a 13 percent of his population that is going to be hardcore refusals. He's got another 30 percent who are who have very legitimate concerns that have to be addressed in a serious and respectful way. But those people are kind of on the fence. But then he has this growing percentage who are won over by the argument that these are safe and effective and you're in your best interest. And in that sense, I think the the engagement strategy emanating from the White House is working to win confidence and trust among the American people, which is what that number to me says. I think that's that's true. The other thing that's interesting to me is that you're not really seeing Republicans attack Joe Biden. They're attacking his nominees on Capitol Hill. They're calling Javier Becerra, his nominee for health secretary, an extremist. They're trying to block Neera Tandon from being the OMB director. But I'm not seeing sort of outright attempts to tear down the president with the kind of rhetoric that we have seen in the past on on both sides of the aisle. He's brought the temperature down. Also, he's a creature of the Senate. I mean, he didn't spend 36 years in the Senate for nothing, right? right. Like, and they like him and he likes them. And One very important relationship he has up there is his relationship with Mitch McConnell. And it actually got him into a little bit of trouble when he was campaigning because he had given a speech at McConnell, at the McConnell Center, I guess at the University of Louisville, or maybe the University of Kentucky at one point. And he had said to McConnell at that time some years ago, you know, we want to see you win again. This was sort of a buddy-buddy, you know, conversation of some years back that came back to haunt him when he was running for president. But they do have a long-standing relationship. And I think it will be very interesting to see how that plays out over time. It'll be interesting to see if this, you know, level of civility lasts. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get things done and work across the aisle. And 
we were talking about how, you know, with Joe Biden being more reserved, being more sober, one of the things we were missing, as you pointed out before we started rolling, is that we missed the the Joe Biden that we all know and love, the the you know the politician who's really a man of the people, the sort who of loves back slapping, gaff prone Joe Biden, who is right. sort of like the happy warrior. I, I miss, I do miss that a little bit. So, so the one the one thing that he did do, which I think fits really well with the strategy of lowering the temperature, is when he. He talks about President Trump. He's now former, the, the former, former guy. guy. He just calls the him, former he guy. won't say his name. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think and that's so, just a dig, honestly. I think that is just Joe Biden giving a little dig at President Trump. He won't say his name. He just calls him the former guy. But that's a very Biden thing to say, too, the former guy. It's like, hey, man, the former guy, you know? And and so that's the Biden we love. And But at the same time, it's maybe it's a dig. But it's also it, it lowers the temperature because, as Steve says, we're not talking about that damn Trump. We're talking about the former guy. Big difference. I'm going to just put up a little flag there when you say the Biden we love. You may love him. I'm a reporter. I know him. And I know, you know, most reporters in Washington have known him for years. But we as journalists are tough on the Biden administration when they and will be tough when they screw up. So I wouldn't want anyone to come away from this thinking that, you know. <laughs> I promise you they won't. And and let's not forget, you know, the New York Times isn't exactly the favorite of the Biden administration. The New York Times is never the favorite of any administration. I'll never forget when I was covering the White House for, I was covering the Obama administration. And one of the first, literally the first days of the administration, I got a phone call at six in the morning from one of Obama's top aides, just literally tearing me down for some story I had written. And it ended with, I don't need the New York Times to get my message out. I've got a million ways to get my message out. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we are we are inherently in an adversarial relationship because it's our job to hold who's ever in power to account. That's how you know you're doing your job. Cheryl, let's talk, before we run out of time, let's talk about U.S. diplomacy for a few minutes. This is something we had a chance to talk about a little earlier the Biden administration has recently leaned forward. Last Friday, a week ago, the president participated in the Munich Security Conference and the G7 and, and made very strong statements there about re-engaging on climate change and on the pandemic response, global health security, confirmed the $4 billion commitment to the COVAX facility through Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the renewal of the relationship with WHO. But this is, it's still a somewhat cautious approach. We, it stopped short of leaning forward on the use of vaccine surpluses to advance U.S. diplomatic and security goals. COVAX is very important, but cash may not be enough. We may need some quick, ample doses. And we're also talking about a pretty crowded, chaotic, untransparent global marketplace where we've got vaccine developers, the Russians, the Indians, the Chinese rushing in. The question I want to ask is, is the U.S. missing a diplomatic moment when it should be jumping forward with a strategy at this moment? What's your thoughts? I think it is missing a diplomatic moment. And I think my thoughts, Steve, are actually drawn from your thoughts, because I know you've been thinking a lot about this. But look, China and Russia and India are already cutting deals with other countries to deliver vaccine and uh, expanding their own sphere of influence. The Biden administration is not doing that. And it's kind of in a little bit of a, 
of a pickle, if you will. They can't exactly come forward and tell Americans we're going to be shipping vaccine to other countries when people here at home can't get vaccinated. By the same token, they know that a pandemic does not end at a country's borders, and it is very important for America's health security and national security to see to it that the vaccine is distributed worldwide in places that need it and don't have access to it. And I think a number of people would say that the Biden administration is really not moving fast enough, that it's true it committed $4 billion to COVAX, the WHO international vaccine effort. But some people would say, I think maybe including you, Steve, that it needs to take more of a leadership role and to to move faster in this space. Yes. I mean, there's the manufacturing gap, right? We need to expand, particularly around the messenger RNA. There's the need to to make use of our surpluses in a strategic way and sell that to the American people with some confidence level. But also the administration will have to sell it to the American people. Right. And they'll, they're going to have to make a case that this is in America's best interests. And so far, they've been reluctant to make that case. So when they rolled out the $4 billion commitment to COVAX, I asked a top White House official, are you going to be delivering vaccine to other countries? And the answer came back, we are going to seriously consider that. We intend to consider that, I think, was the way this person phrased it. And, you know, it was a very kind of cautious, maybe. They didn't want to, you know, get out ahead of themselves. Yeah, officially, they've, they've issued a statement, as has Boris Johnson's government, saying, in principle, this is use of surpluses in principle will be a diplomatic tool at the right moment. So it's left it vague in terms of timing and the like. I would hope that as we as things stabilize in terms of the supply chain, delivering doses to Americans, as that the supply improves, as the seasonality kicks in, as confidence levels rise around the durability of all of these changes, that there's and as the State Department gets itself gets its sea legs with its own senior staff in place, that there'll be a desire to lean forward diplomatically. And sooner rather than later, I think it would be better. Yeah, well, like we said earlier, they're in a race against these variants. And so the sooner we can get people vaccinated, the faster the, we can get the virus to stop spreading and replicating, the better off we'll be. As Tony Fauci would say, a virus cannot mutate if it can't replicate. So, so that's the goal. Cheryl, what about, you know, the COVID budget negotiations? What are you hearing about that? We've, we've got that coming up and people need the aid. I think that's going to pass. I, I think that, you know, the parliamentarians ruling that the $15 minimum wage provision cannot be included uh, probably helps helps the bill to get it passed. And I think that we're in a, you know, we're in a Congress where the, the House is a Democratic majority. It's going to pass there. The Senate is 50-50. I don't see any senator, Democratic senators breaking ranks. And, you know, if Kamala Harris has to break a tie, she will. But I, I would suspect that the, it will pick up some Republican votes in the Senate. I'm not on the Hill very much these days, so I don't have my ear to the ground, but I would be surprised. And and also given what we said before, that the public wants to see this happen. And I don't think that lawmakers can really go home to their districts and say, 
you know, we're not like, we're not trying to help you. People need help. And we've got several very prominent, highly respected Republican governors saying, this is a good idea. Let's move ahead. Right. So I, I think we'll pass. I don't, you know, will it be the full 1.9 trillion, everything Joe Biden wants? I don't know, but I, I think that there will be a substantial rescue package approved. What are um, some of the big stories that you're thinking about coming up without giving away, you know, the the big reports that you're about to do? What, what are some of the issues you're really thinking about? Well, I'll give you a little teaser. I do have a big investigative piece coming soon about the national stockpile. And I also am thinking a lot actually about the vaccine diplomacy issue that we talked about and how will the Biden administration use the vaccine or not use it to advance America's interests overseas and at home. I'm thinking about the decline in testing and how testing will be used. You know, the number of cases, thankfully, has declined. The number of hospitalizations is down. And as a result, coronavirus testing is down. But that's because testing is being used largely as a diagnostic tool. And what we really need to see is testing used as a screening tool. Right. The administration has said that it is going to focus on testing. The president has said he was going to appoint a pandemic testing board, similar to Roosevelt's War Production Board. I don't see much work out of that te pandemic testing board yet. I'm, I'm told that there's a group meeting behind the scenes. But, you know, I'm very interested in how are we going to incorporate testing into our response going forward, because I think that that is going to be critical to really opening up society, to opening up schools, to enabling people to go to concerts or crowded theaters. How much of that is going to be dependent on the passage of the bill? The bill has $400 billion dedicated to different forms of response on this yes. pandemic. Some of that of is going to be is dependent on passage of the bill, but also some of it, I think, is frankly dependent on the marketplace. I mean, if there's a market for at-home testing, then companies will step in. I think we're not quite there with rapid at-home testing, but... I'm told that we may be in the, you know, hopefully not too distant future so that, you know, you or I could just take a test at home and have some quick results. It won't be as reliable as the PCR testing that has to get shipped away to a lab and takes a few days to come back. But but it might ease our transition back into some sense of normalcy. When do you think you'll begin to be able to travel more in your work? Well, I think probably when I get vaccinated. I mean, I think that, you know, no, nobody's really eager for in-person meetings if they don't have to have them. Uh, some of my colleagues have traveled to, you know, some are going into hospitals. I, I write more about policy. The ones who write about the healthcare delivery system have, you know, gone into hospitals. And of course, we've had, you know, White House correspondents traveling with the president. One of my colleagues actually wound up getting COVID on that beat when he covered President Trump. But, you know, I would think things will hopefully start opening up in the spring if all goes well. Summer. Um, I don't want to make I'm like Joe Biden. I don't want to make too many predictions. <laughs> so let's close with the question that we try and get all of our guests to answer, which is what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking forward? 
Oh, what gives me hope and optimism? Reporters aren't supposed to have hope and optimism. No, no, no. I have hope and optimism. <laughs> I know Cheryl has I'm optimism. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, it's funny. I was thinking this morning that it feels like spring is around the corner in a variety, not only the temperature, but just, you know, the vaccination effort. We are, Yes, it's slow, but we are moving apace. People are getting vaccinated. I think 14% of the public, the American public has now had its first shot. 7% has had both shots. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine appears to be on the verge of approval manufacturing is going to scale up. And I, I also do have some hope that maybe, just maybe, Biden's effort to lower the temperature will work and that we can come back together as a country a little bit. Because even maybe more than the pandemic, that's something that I really worry about is how divided we are as a country. And I just think that it's you know, we just need to find some way to find common ground. Thanks so much, Cheryl, for joining us. It's been great to see Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl.